0: Hello everybody and welcome to WTS 252, What's the Story podcast 252. My name is Danny Murray.
1: And I'm Graeme Merrigan.
0: How are you Graeme Merrigan, are you keeping well?
1: Yeah, I, f- I feel good, how are you?
0: Yeah, I'm doing alright man, I'm doing alright. I've a bit of a head cold. Um, it's my second one in the space of about six weeks. Which uh, obviously, a head cold these days leads to all kinds of questions and all kinds of panic. You know,
1: but, and do you feel The need to be tested
0: um, I didn't get tested Oksana got tested The lovely Oksana got tested And it came back negative so, PCR,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, PCR Yeah PCR Yeah um, PCR So Yeah Like we're, we're all good And everything else And sure, We don't really go anywhere Or see people anyway so, You have a poor yeah. immune system Don't you but the my immune system I, I don't know what's going on I think I'm, put, you've, I'm putting you've, it down
1: You have the immune system Of a Of a hamster
0: i mean there's there's hamsters out there who look at me and go the poor creature <laughs> you know, uh I, I don't know what the story is to be honest with you it's uh yeah i'm putting it down to the fact that i'm just not around people at all anymore so then i put myself into a situation where i'm around people and suddenly uh i'm exposed mm-hmm. to all kinds of shenanigans and skullduggery and uh all that kind of crack so yeah but look going grand it's only a head cold thankfully and uh yeah, look, just everyone, just uh, mind yourselves out there, and I'm one thing and the other because it's it's wild, as they wow. say. Um, so before we kick off this week, Meryl, just yeah. a quick quick congratulations in order to m- me brother who recently tied the knot. Um, so congratulations to John and Belle, uh, and a very happy marriage to them.
1: Huge congratulations, and it was a, it was a privilege to be part of their nuptials.
0: Indeed, indeed. Um, Donald doesn't listen to
1: this anymore. That wouldn't say he doesn't have the time of being a father and being a husband and, be, and being a gamer and a worker. There's no way he has time for us anymore.
0: Oh no, no, he just doesn't want to. He doesn't want to listen to me more than he has to either. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's enough things going on in his life without hearing his little brother pontificate through an audio presentation. You know. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I want to do very quickly is uh, we're all about kind of you know support local and boy Irish and all that kind of thing. There's a lovely little website, Graham. If you're looking to buy anybody a book this Christmas, head on over to bookworld.ie. Lovely book business. World, eh? Yeah, I think that they're based in Wexford, I think it is. Um and uh, to, to give a personal plug, if you will, if you use the code Oxy, you'll get 30% off. OXY. OXY, you'll get 30% off. Bookworld.ie. Lovely people. Supporting Irish business lads. Books are great Christmas presents. That's a free ad. It is, and if you haven't uh, if you haven't read a book in a while, I totally recommend get one. Get into. It. I've been reading books Non-stop throughout the pandemic, and I'm really. Do you, would you read every night? I would. read I'd say definitely every second night. There's some days the where bed just, like. No, no, no. I just I'd switch the telly off for an hour and I just read a book. And oh, would you not fall asleep? <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, no. You and I are the kings of naps. I love a nap. So Absolutely love a nap. I
1: find when I start reading. I kind of get the nods and before I know
0: it, I'm asleep. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd never refuse, like if I feel like a nap is coming on, I'll I'll make the most of it. I'd never refuse it, you know, so if I got Your st-
1: idea, we, we talked about this over the weekend. Your idea of a nap is two hours long. My idea of a nap is 45 minutes. And over an hour yeah. to me is asleep.
0: No, and less than an hour to me isn't worthwhile. <laughs> Just not. You, like.
1: you love Saturday afternoons. Uh, international break oh.
0: naps, don't you? Oh, listen! It's Saturday afternoon. When there's no club football on. When there's no sport on on a Saturday afternoon that I've any interest in, a little sneaky under the covers nap. Now that's that's. Oh, I under mean. the covers. Oh, under the, and under cover under the covers nap is the best kind of nap. On a Saturday afternoon. Oh, you better believe it, man. And oh. then you wake
1: up and like then you wake up. It's pitch black, but it's only half five. So, you've the rest of the evening.
0: That's it, yeah Or even sometimes I'll just throw a little blanket Over me on the sofa And I just Curl up Ah, and, you do not, Danny. Absolutely, I do Yeah, me, me and the dogs Having a little snooze together, you know
1: Yeah, I fell asleep so. today With Sugsy. Sugsy fell asleep on the arse
0: hmm.
1: His farts are putrid, man
0: Yeah, dogs' farts are putrid And by the time people listen to this Sugsy will Have a <laughs> uh, he'll, he'll be two stone lighter <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God He's uh he's he's go- he's going in to, to be neutered. Yeah. Are your lads neutered? Uh yeah, they they are, yeah, they all are. Yeah, yeah. And what was the process like? Not a bother on them, not a bother They're a little bit groggy and all that. We picked them up, but uh not a bother on them. And they were the cone of shame and all? Uh only for a couple of days. They weren't really at themselves, they weren't really so it was only for was a day or
1: Always at himself.
0: Always. Yeah. i uh I'll I'll stop talking about dogs or I'll start crying again, man. Before. All right, sorry, sorry. We recently lost Cali, and I'm still not uh, still not great, to be honest. But anyway, sorry, bringing that down. No worries. Um, so anyway, Graham, look, that's enough waffling. Do you want to give a little intro to our wonderful guest? I'm delighted with this guest, by the way. Absolutely fantastic, Land.
1: So now joining us, uh, I suppose it's, it's a bit of one off the list for me and Danny, uh, and we just never quite got it over the line. We never got a contact, but now we do and uh, we're delighted to have the executive director of Amnesty International Ireland, uh, the great Colm O'Gorman, is on the show. With us. Thanks very much for joining us and uh, giving us your time, Colm, how are you?
2: I'm good, Graham. thanks very much indeed and, and thanks Danny, happy to be doing this, delighted to be doing it, we've been talking about it for a little while. So. That sounds so bloody um, um, showbiz, we've been talking about it <laughs> It's like basically we were DMing on Twitter and, 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 and stuff happened and other things started to happen and we never quite, quite Got our crap
1: together, and, and, and any chance for me to get the phrase "over the line" in a in a podcast is always a bonus. I love that saying "over the line."
0: That, that's it. Yeah, and we, that's all right. But if you say going forward, we have to end the conversation.
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah, okay. it's it's mad because it's, as as that proverb says it says uh, we're living in interesting times. So like you say a lot of stuff has come up over the last little while that stopped it from happening for one reason or the other. Um. And in just off air, we are talking about another significant event recently that didn't stop this from happening. But if Anton has probably made it great that it has happened. The new ABBA album. We we're talking about mutual friend Phil O'Connor being connected to, to Bjorn and how je- jealous we are of his connection yeah, That agree,
2: absolutely sick green. <laughs>
0: <And> if at <laughs> some point if, if at some
2: point I don't manage to wangle some sort of I don't know moment out of I'd be like Ava are one of the are, are 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 one of the few people I'd be worried about meeting. Mm. Really? I'd be like, yeah, be like- I just think I I I I'm just I think I'd lose my shit, right? <laughs> because in all truth, like like they at a particular point in my life, they were a source of of joy and light and delight when I really desperately needed it, like when I was a teenager, and and they were huge for me, you know, um. And like, I I would not find, I'd find it impossible not to thank them for that, which yeah, is yeah, a yeah. bloody cliche. But it and actually that... had a massive, massive impact on me, you know. But yeah, Danny, and Grammy nominated now with the new album. This is
0: it, yeah. Oh, wow, is, is, is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah is it any album. good? It is, it's, do you know what, right? I love it for a couple of reasons. And, and I also don't love it for a couple of reasons. But I'm, I'm mostly loving it. I've given it a good few listens this stage. It's unapologetically ABBA. It hasn't, it hasn't tried to be modern. It hasn't tried to do anything of this 2021 world we're living in. It is basically like Yabba said, you know what? We know we're laying and we're sticking to it. And I am delighted they did. And so there's a few great songs in there that, you know, they, they could fit right into an Abba Greatest Hits as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, uh, I mean,
2: I, I completely agree. Like, it, I've it, I, I read one review that said this is... this this is absolutely the follow-up to the visitors, but it could have been the follow-up to the visitors that followed within a few years. And it's all the better for it. I think it's, I think it's great. Like I love it. On the, on the first listen, I kind of went, okay, this is okay. This is okay. But the the more I've listened to it, the more, the more that I just absolutely love it. Like I I think it's, there's some phenomenal tracks on it. And as often happens with ABBA sometimes the very best tracks are you come to them later you come to appreciate them a little bit later on and actually there's a depth to the lyrics in on on this album as well that i think is is great um but yeah no i'm 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 beside myself i mean i managed to get (laughs) i managed to get tickets for the first for for the first night of the shows in in london yeah yeah i can't bloody wait and like you should have been if you would have been in my house you would have found it hilarious because like one of the lowest points in my life was at the age of 12 or 13 not being able to get tickets to go and see them in dublin when they were and I've never, like at 55, you can hear it. I've never quite recovered from that. <laughs> and I'm not messing. Like it's a series of significant mm-hmm. grief and ire to me that when they came to Dublin on that one occasion in the late 70s, I did not manage to go and get and see them. Like I was devastated. So, so here I was all geared up, ready to buy tickets for the, for the, for the shows when they happen in, in London in the new Abarth Stadium, um, which I saw being built recently when I was there. So I got terribly excited. Um, and I'm in the queue. And I know there's 3,000 tickets and I'm number 2,200 or something. I think, yeah, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. And then I got in and I'm selecting my tickets. And, you know, you're selecting them and saying, no, those are sold. Go back again. Go back again. Go back again. And then I'm, I'm going to log through. And for some reason, my, 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 uh, it takes you to, 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 a, to a ticket selling site, Ticket Masters. Mm. And then um, when it went to take me through to log me in, my password had obviously changed. And I haven't used that site in ages. And I got thrown out of it. So I got thrown out completely. Oh, my and the key God. where I went, suddenly 13 year old me was sitting there, and, <laughs> and my husband and my daughter were both here, and they were both like. And were they
1: trying on other devices?
2: No, well? they, were, they, they were both, I think, didn't know whether to be amused, shocked, or taken <laughs> by the level of obvious distress that I was in at the idea that I had been thrown out of here. Like I literally went pale and came running down here to try and work out what would happen. But I managed to get them, so I got I got back in anyway, and I got tickets for the first night, and I'm delighted. I cannot wait. Amazing,
0: really. yeah. I'm extremely envious now of that. Uh, yeah, I, I just it's it's a weird one because as you said, like their the, the music is this kind of constant source of joy. Like I don't think yeah. you can turn on an ABBA song and not kind of even 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 the kind of you know the sadder ones or even the ones that aren't you know the the, the pop banging tunes you can't help but kind of tap along and bop your head and they're just extremely infectious and I think we're all the uh, well, better for it.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I was, I was that, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old kid in, 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 in the early 80s. Um, actually, go back further, the late 1970s when I first started listening to them. I mean, my mother actually bought the First Grade Tits album and I lived, so I would have been like eight maybe and I can remember sitting in their bedroom watching them win the Eurovision the year that they won it. Like, I remember that
0: yeah
2: all the way by that and then she would have bought their first greatest hits album which came out not long after that right um and i can remember dancing around the living room like a man thing to that uh, <laughs> um when i was like eight or nine um but I'm, then I'm like forty
0: four, and i'm still doing it well i'm, I'm still so. doing it now,
2: but like at eight or nine i can remember doing it like literally leaping from one chair to the next as this playing on a but then like i was in 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 school uh, <laughs> um Everybody else was into ACDC and, and Bob Dylan and Neil Young um, and wore that. And I wore uh, my devotion to ABBA in exactly the same color. Yes. Way, which, was, yes. Which, was, which was, you know, wasn't the easiest thing to do in rural Ireland as a <laughs> teenage boy. And uh, yeah, like and I, I remember going down to the book center in, in, in Wexford every month to buy ABBA the magazine. Like I was buying, I was importing. An um, uh, LP by the Hootenanny Singers, which was the band that Benny and Bjorn were in before they formed mm. ABBA, and importing like solo albums by Agnetha and Anifrid you know that they did in Swedish. Like I was that kind of much of a, a, a complete ABBA fan. Amazing, yeah. absolutely love that. So like I, I just a bit of me can't quite get my head around the fact that they're 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 back on some level. Yeah, yeah, it's it is like, a bit it's surreal. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens though, because I, I remember when when they when they launched the like voyage, the album, and the two lads did an interview with Zoe Ball, and they were saying, you know, Annie Frid and Agneta, they've said they'll do it, but they're not doing any interviews, they're not doing any of that, and that's kind of Agneta's thing; she's she's hugely private anyway. But then Frida did an interview um, on on BBC Breakfast uh, Radio with Zoe Ball, which was really interesting. Um, and she said at one point in it that she didn't quite understand why Benny said this was the last thing that you do because that hadn't been agreed. This was the last thing that they do. So like, oh, that could be more probably. That could be more. Jay, that's so but it's, it's brilliant that like in their 70s, like they're what? Most of them are in their, like Frida's 76, I think at this stage now. Oh, when wow. You to her voice. Like when you listen to her voice. I, I think in some ways Frida's voice is actually better. It's got. It was. It always had depth, but it's got more depth and soul to it now. I think our voice is incredible.
0: I think there's a there's a few artists that go through that. I think like yeah, think People people seem to forget as well that that Bruce Springsteen isn't a young man, and I think Bruce has got a lot better with age. You know? yeah. yeah, well,
1: closer to home as well, Christy Timor, Christy Timor, Christy <laughs> Moore. As he gets older, his voice is in a live concert is just you're kind of leaving the concert going. How is he getting better?
0: Yeah. It
1: certainly is is,
0: music is a blessing, lads, isn't it? It truly is. Yeah, it
1: is. It's like what Column said there, it's an escape. Like it's it's you put on music when you're driving long haul and you feel the better for it. It helps you along the drives.
2: And a connection, too, right? It's both an escape, but also something that helps to ground you in, I don't mean necessarily in your own life or with yourself, but in the world somehow, right? I mean, so for me, I mean, I can remember zipping around doing Wirra roller disco in Wexford with the Winner tape at all playing. And it was one of the times, like, it was one of the rare times when, you know, 14, 15-year-old, little gay teenage me who didn't even know I was gay at that stage <laughs> could, like, roller skate to ABBA in circles with my arms outstretched. <laughs> and into it completely and live it and feel connected. I didn't even know that's what was happening to me and just feel connected mm-hmm. with myself in a way that I didn't in other ways. You know? so Unbelievable. I think, yeah, I think, I think music gives us a moment to connect with ourselves but also beyond ourselves because it because it is so universal and and you know at its at its best it it that's exactly what it does it connects us with or it grounds us in a life beyond ourselves in some place you know and great music and i think great lyrics and great emotive music does that right there's a common there's there's a there's a common language. Uh, um, um, I'm talking shite now, aren't I? But there, if you know what I mean, like how, yeah, how, yeah. Did, how did a, a 13 or 14-year-old kid engage with a, a lyric or a song like The Winner Takes It All and have it mean something? Yeah, yeah. Well, I couldn't have understood what the lyrics meant on a real emotional level, I suppose, in some ways. But what I could embrace with was the, was the force or the quality or the depth of connection that the singer had with the lyric that felt incredibly authentic and free and open. And that was what I needed then, I suppose, more than
0: anything else. It is it's it's a powerful thing. Um I call them, as as a as a parent of, of two, and um and I think your your kids now are at an age where they'd uh, they'd have their own taste in music and that kind of thing. Have you found yourself hearing some of the stuff they're listening to and going, What in the name of Christ have they got?
1: <laughs> Great question.
2: <laughs> yeah, they're twenty two and twenty four now. Um yeah. How did that happen? So uh, another great cliche. Um, so no, I, I definitely. Um, but that can be a bit of crack, right? I mean, particularly, um, you know, when it's a lot of urban stuff or like significant hip hop, right? Mm. Um, like a lot of it, I'll enjoy, and 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 yeah. But there are moments, yeah, definitely. I remember the first time I ever said, "Jesus, that all sounds exactly the same," and I went. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh no <laughs> You
2: went there I went How are you dad How's it going That's yeah. a great crack altogether uh, Yeah It's uh,
0: my, my parent has brother lives with us And he, he'd be a similar age To, to your kids And uh, Every so often Over the The speaker Or the The bluetooth speaker Or whatever I'll just hear something And I'll be like Is he listening to the same song again And I'll get <laughs> eye rolls From everyone else in the house Being like Oh come on granddad Come on
1: Come dad. on Danny I'm surprised at you you know? but like I love
0: I love those moments as well because they're like it's
2: it's another one of those moments where you realize that everything's grand, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. This is
2: just how it is, you know. That's
1: how that's how, what that's what the instructions manual said. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. what's yeah. supposed to happen. <laughs>
2: yeah, but there's something, but then also you know, you get to say to them, and you're gonna do exactly this, right? But then the other piece is that I mean I'm I, we we'd be we'd be quite open in the conversations that we have, you know. Mm. So um <laughs> You know, we've all lived, right? <laughs> so, so,
1: I'm wondering where this is going, Colin. <laughs> yeah. So it's,
2: no, I, I, meant, I, meant, I meant more like, I mean, one of the things I suppose that I really, really value about about being a parent at the time that we can be, that, that, that I've been able to be a parent is that, that conversations that are a lot more honest and real can be possible, you know? So I'm able, I, I've been able to have conversations with, with, with my kids that don't pretend somehow that I haven't lived and that I haven't really lived right and i was about to say that i haven't made mistakes so of course i've made mistakes but also that i haven't embraced experiences that my parents would have frowned upon or that were told as as, as parents were meant to frown upon and yeah yeah like that's not brilliant no so, i mean one of the things that i've that i've really valued in in the relationship that i have with 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 the kids and she'd kill me for saying it but well, she wouldn't kill me for saying it but i'm always a bit conscious of talking about it with, with our daughter in particular, is that they're very positive conversations around relationships and sex and sexuality and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's, mm. one of the things I'm really grateful for is, is is that I've been a dad at a time when it was possible to be honest and authentic and to have real conversations with kids. You know, um, because I, you know, I, I think back to my own dad who would never have had any of those kinds of conversations, like ever. No, mm. It never would have happened. And I don't know that that's because of who he was. I think it's because of, how he, had, how he had to be. And there's a terrible loss. Yeah, there's a terrible loss in that. You know, our, our, our parents, they didn't really get to know us and in some ways we didn't really get to know them. You know, we didn't get to celebrate, you know, the joy of what it means to be human and to go out there and to, to go a bit mad occasionally or to even to make mistakes or, or actually not to make mistakes, to have these moments of significant, these significant moments in our life, you know, where we do something for the first time. And because the wisdom is that you shouldn't be doing certain things, you're not allowed to talk about it or explore it or share that experience with the people that perhaps you're closest to. That's why, it. That's a terrible
1: thing. Why, do you th- or, or why or how do you think that has evolved to nowadays? Because as you said, in the 80s, 90s, or even beyond whenever, um, you wouldn't have envisaged having that conversation with your father. Um, I probably wouldn't have having personal conversations at 15, 16, yeah. um, 1920 with my father, Um, in regards to those topics, what is it, has it become more, um, has it become more open because of social media and people in the same boat sharing same life experiences and kind of challenging these things now?
2: I was talking to somebody earlier today about, about change and how it happens and like change, change, takes a very long time to happen and then it often manifests very quickly. So I think sometimes when we're trying to understand how change came about, we look to a moment like maybe social media or an advent of technology or something else. And we say, that was the pain. And actually, if anything, that was, that was the channel through which we began to realize that change had happened was the channel through which we begin to maybe see it or understand it. And I think all of this is, is, is part of just an opening up of, humanity and of society, like particularly here in Ireland, you know, where the things we were told we could not do and could not talk about, we've rejected that completely. So we've demanded a certain, we haven't demanded, we've secured a liberation from old orthodoxies about what it meant to be acceptable. And to be acceptable meant conforming to narrow views of what it meant to be human. You know, it, it, it meant that to be, to be acceptable, you had to conform with a dogma about what it meant to be human. And that meant that you had to be heterosexual, celibate to marriage, uh, all of these other things that nobody is and nobody, well, when I say nobody is, the few people are and the few people can can be all the way through their lives. And as part of all of that, we had to cut off so many different parts of our humanity or hide them or drive them underground. And when they get driven underground, they become dark, they become messy, they become shameful, they become all kinds of things. And when we begin to reject that dogma, the idea that we can, be more fully ourselves gradually starts to happen. Like the the great thing about life in all of its forms, whether it's a seed grown out of a crack in a wall or whether it's the human spirit finding a way to manifest itself as joyously as it can is when the conditions exist for it to do so, it will start to emerge. And I think as we began to, to, to cast off that kind of oppression and as we fought to liberate ourselves more and more and more, we just created a condition, the conditions within which we could be more authentically ourselves. Now we've a lot more of it to do. and I think that's how it's happened. And it happened. It's been happening for decades, right? But it's, it's sped up a pace, I suppose, you know, certainly from, from the early part of this century, Jesus, how can I be saying the early part of this century? Now I am ancient. That, that's like from, from the, from the two thousands on, you know, as the, and, and this isn't a, a statement that's meant to be an attack, for instance, on the Catholic church. But as the as the authority and as the theocratic control that the church had on on Irish society began to be not just dismantled but 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 set aside entirely, then you know all sorts of things began to be possible.
0: Sorry, go on, go on, go on.
1: Yeah, Conor, I have a bit of a worry, right? And um, when you're on when I'm on Twitter or whatever, and and um, I've thought about this loads uh, privately, like I'll oh, say over the two years or whatever, when I'm just observing things. And uh, Graham Linehan kind of sparked the worry in me, in a sense that the hatred that seems to be around in, in, in Britain over transgender. And, and the worry that I have is that hatred is going to come over to, to Ireland. And um, now, what you were saying there is completely like you've articulated it how I've always wanted to articulate it in terms of, you know, there's comfortable spaces now to, to express your identity, express who you want to be. And, and, you know, I, I've just overheard conversations and um, saying like, Oh, this is, this is a bandwagon, you know, but he, she, them, they, this is a bandwagon. transgenders a bandwagon. I've heard th- that those conversations occur, like just in the background or whatever, um, but the worry I have is that the hatred that has transpired more. Like, I'm hopeful that it's in an, an echo chamber and it's it's exclusive to English kind of Twitter as opposed to um, the wider public in Britain. But I would be worried that that hatred would come over to Ireland. So how can we how can we prevent that? And is there like, do you get what I'm saying? I'm, I'm probably not articulating. No, no I
2: I I I do completely, and I'm glad we're having this conversation in particular in relation to trans rights and trans people. And, and the dignity of trans people. So I, I think we have to be very careful to not buy into the idea that we're immune to that and that somehow we're beyond that or better than that. Um, we're human, right? Mm. With all of the potential for for wonder and beauty and glory that that entails, but also with the propensity for the shadow in, a, in all of that. How are you? With the shadow, sorry, the dog is just coming behind me. There may be another one <laughs> joining at any moment. Gorgeous. Uh, yeah and and with the with with the the shadow side of that can also emerge as well and I think you know the, the so so we have to be we have to be um alert um and i don't mean alert to other people manifesting hate we have to be alert to the ways in which we can contribute to the objectification of other people or where we will permit or be silent or acquiesce to the demonization of particular people and particular groups now at the same time, i think the one thing that we have to um, try and avoid doing is 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 giving space to and energy to uh, those who want to diminish other people. So there's a balance to be struck between between challenging hate um, and deciding instead, rather than challenging hate and amplifying a given energy and space, manifesting love. So I think if you're concerned, for instance, and we all I think should be concerned about the trans community in particular at the moment, globally. And yes, here in Ireland, too, because even though we're in a very different place and a, better, a very much better place, big issues here in Ireland around trans rights, particularly around trans healthcare, massive issues, massive issues there in relation to trans healthcare. But I think if you care about those issues, yes, absolutely. Call out the hate when you see it, but on a very regular basis, show solidarity, manifest love, manifest concern, stand for people rather than against the hate, right? So yes, stand against that, but actually we need to be manifesting the opposite, positive more and more and more. That's the best way ever to defeat hate, is to manifest love powerfully, determinately, every day to do it. Yeah. Uh, to not It's about more than not just being a bystander, it's about being actively committed. Uh, um, 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 to 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 manifesting love and to respecting the the rights and dignity of other people, and you know the the trans issue it's it's an interesting one. We talk about the trans issue, right? I mean, look on one level, like people have reasonable questions. For many people, the notion of trans identity, or or uh, the idea or understanding of what it might mean to be intersex, for instance, or gender non-conforming, these are These are challenging ideas because we're all taught certain things from birth that actually aren't true. We're taught that sex is binary, and it isn't. As a matter of biological and physiological fact, it is not. Sex is not binary. Hmm. It can be. There are elements that could be defined as binary, but only if you ignore all of the non-binary characteristics that can arise around sex uh, uh, um, and gender then, obviously, as well. So we're taught that. um, So allowing for the the possibility that that's not true can be challenging for people. So people have questions and it's it's okay and appropriate that people would ask those questions. But I think those questions need to be asked in a way that's both respectful, but that also understands that asking a question doesn't mean it's okay to put other people's dignity, identity, existence, and rights up for debate because you're into the drama or because you've decided that this is how you're gonna manifest your own power by engaging in this kind of crap on Twitter. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, it's, it's I, I, I'm really glad that that has not um, taken off in Ireland the way it has in, in, in the UK in particular. There's efforts. I mean, you know, there are, there are, there are people out there, you know, and there are, there are organisations, and I'm not going to get into, into the place of naming them because that's amplifying them and giving the space that they want. Who, who purport to be organisations that, that, that are there for people of uh, non-heterosexual sexual orientations. And actually, their primary reason to exist is to diminish and, and denigrate trans people and their rights. Uh, and they're, not, they're not rights-based organisations. They're anti-rights organisations. Um, and they have sought to establish themselves here in Ireland as well, and they're trying to, to get that taken off. And you will see them get space in the media. And you will see, by the way, mainstream media commentators. We saw it in the Sunday Independent a couple of weeks ago, uh, um, where Eilish O'Hanlon wrote a piece that was reprehensible. But Eilish O'Hanlon, O'Hanlon has written pieces on trans people decade, a decade ago or more that were reprehensible. And, um, you know, and she wrote appalling things about Lydia, Lydia Foy, who was the, the person who took Ireland to the European Court of Human Rights and was really instrumental in advancing um, and legal gender recognition for trans people here in Ireland. So, you know, that stuff will be given a platform here um, and we should call it out and challenge it when we see it. But the more important part, I think, is to be, a, you know, to be a real ally. Um, and, and again, ally is a phrase that gets overused if it can sound a bit kind of a bit fashionable, can't it? I'm an ally. Well, what does it mean? It, 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 it means that you, you stand with and for somebody and that when you see somebody manifest hate or attack them, you will step forward to defend them. But the other piece that you're going to do is you're going to do the opposite. You're going to show them that they are loved and supported and that you are concerned for them. And for me, that's the most important thing we need to do right now.
0: It's it's an interesting one as well, because I think there's a lot of people who are on a little bit of a journey in terms of, I see, there's, there's a big awakening going on for a lot of people. And, and I'm not saying that to, to bring up kind of, you know, the, the, the woke and all that kind of thing, because mm. that, that's a trigger word for a lot of people. But even if we look at it from a personal point of view, you know, I mean, I'd have being ignorant to a huge amount of these things in very recent years and I'm sure in the past you know I'd have laughed at jokes or I'd have made a joke that now kind of uh, with a little bit more knowledge I'd go actually hang on that that's not all right like and I think more and more people are starting to do that and more and more people and it is in, in a way true kind of social media and hearing people share their stories and all those kind of things that we we get to a point where when we can actually see the the, the human side of this and when we can kind of, it's that thing about connections again, when we connect with people and we realize, hang on a second, this person's hurting and I don't want to see them hurt, you know? And I think that plays a big part in it.
2: Uh, absolutely. I think the other thing that we have to do is that we have to normalize conversations around bigotry and we have to own our own prejudices. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I remember the run up to the marriage equality referendum, you know, when, when Rory, when, when, Panty Blaise was on, or when he was on as Rory O'Neill on, on the Brendan O'Connor show, when he made those comments um, that resulted in him being sued by members of the Iona Institute um, and RT being sued by them and giving them a large payout. Um, immediately after that, it became very clear that the one, the one word you would not be allowed to use in the context of the marriage equality referendum was homophobia. Mm if somehow that was the terrible thing that you could accuse people of. And we see it as well in conversations around misogyny or race or any other form of bigotry. We're now at a point where to simply challenge people and to challenge the prejudice that we will all at various points manifest is a greater offence than to actively manifest that prejudice and denigrate other people. So the victims of racism are racists, not the victims of racism the victims of conversations around homophobia are not LGBTQ people whose rights are denied and diminished, but they are homophobes. You know, and I can remember writing a piece um, after, after the, the, the Panty Bliss piece that explored that, after that whole get thing uh, um, that explored that. And I remember putting a, a subheader on it, they ran it in the end and it, 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 it was, I'm a homophobe and so is my husband. And the point that I was trying to make is that you, you cannot grow up in a society which within which Certain prejudices are ingrained and, uh, and, and uh, you know, absolutely part of that society. They're almost cultural within the society. And be immune to them. You will carry them. So the trick is, is, is to be able to identify and question and be critical about one's own, one's own prejudices. And that's okay. And we should, I think we need to create a space where we can just, I don't mean we make it okay that we all hold prejudices, well, we understand and accept that that's a simple reality that we're all human we've all we've all grown up in societies where, where certain prejudices and bigotries have been you know systemic we will hold them we will carry them okay then the question is like for me then the great crime is not to call it is is not to call it out the great crime is not to be alert and alive to the fact that you will hold them and to challenge yourself so, if we're, I mean, it seems to me that the, the the critical call has to be that we would we would be alive to and eager to understand, embrace, and challenge our own prejudices, as opposed to run away from the notion that somehow we would hold them.
0: Yeah, it's um, it, it's, it's that phrase that I, I find myself kind of hearing more and more these days and and, and even we, we had jay jordan on the podcast recently and talking about her experience of growing up and it's that do the best you can until you know better and when you know better do better do better yeah yeah, I, mean, I, have, I have held views that have been homophobic, that have been racist, that have been misogynistic, that have been sexist,
2: that have been classist. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, classism, I mean, we, we're living in a country where we pretend that we don't have a class system, you know, class class is not an issue in this country. You know, there's one of the great prejudices still uh, um, that we really need to start to get to grips with here in Ireland. I've I've held many views that have been grounded in prejudice and bigotry. Um, I'm certain, well, I'm confident that there'll be more that I need to understand. But the trick is to be alive and to alert to that and to be ready to have that challenge and to own it. Mm-hmm. But I think in all of that, and one of the things we have to avoid doing as well is, is, is making the victims of our prejudices responsible for educating us. We have to be ready to do the work. Yeah. you know, um, and Because too too often, we look to the victims of violations and abuses and prejudice to somehow do the work for us and show us how we need to change and I I, you know and and that's certainly something you know both as a gay man but also as a a victim or a survivor a victim of sexual violence over the years I I always found quite challenging you know that 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 people want to say well you were incredibly brave to speak about all of that and on one level it's like I didn't really understand what that meant because for me there was no option but to speak about it. it it wasn't possible not to once I acknowledged the, the extent of what had been happening. It had to be named. It had to be challenged. But equally, I got to the point where I, I used to get really annoyed when people would say it. And I said, look, the, the fact that, that, that people like me speak out on these kinds of issues or the fact that, for instance, you know, people of color are, are forced into a situation where they have to challenge white people to acknowledge the, the level of systemic racism, the violent racism that exists across many of our societies. That's, that's not an indication of a, an incredibly courageous person. And that isn't the place that we should go to. Yes, they are being incredibly courageous. Yes, that's... But why do they have to be courageous? They have to be courageous because the rest of us are cowards. Yeah. You know, the, the, the real thing that that reflects is a cowardly society. And, and I think we need to be a courageous society that's prepared to hold up a mirror, to look inwards and to challenge ourselves. And when we do that... We can only be brilliant. We can only be the better for it. It takes us back to where the conversation started. Why are we, why have we moved forward now in a way that allows us to be more fully human, to be more compassionate, to be more loving, to be more open to the conversations we have to have with each other? Because we had, we had mirrors held up to us and we had no choice at times, but also we chose to look inward and look on ourselves and decide that we wouldn't accept that anymore. That this is not who we are. We are this. Like why did people dance in the street for days after the marriage equality referendum? You know, it wasn't why did so many people do it. Like why did the country celebrate that in the main? It wasn't because we had decided that two people of the same gender could get married. You know, it was because we were we were liberating ourselves. We were both casting off a, an oppressive idea of who we were meant to be. Something that made us less human. And instead we were manifesting the best of our humanity. And that was a liberation for all of us. And Completely that's why we danced in the streets.
1: And, and to get there, Colin, to get to the, the point where we're dancing in the streets for the right thing to do, um, yourself uh, and a couple of other commentators during that time, um, you, you, you have to go into very private storytelling yeah. about your private lives to try and get the message across to try and say this is the right thing to do, like we see that with people of colour, uh, people of colour uh, migrants trying to get in, get over the, the English border at the moment. They're mm. t- telling incredible stories, but they're losing their lives. We're seeing a, a home with um, uh, kids with spina bif, the bifida, hydrocolles, uh, tr- trying to get their operations for scoliosis, where the parents have to come out on social media, national media, and tell their private stories, like. I love the finale. I love the result. But to get there, it's draining. Like this week I'm trying to get a new wheelchair and I put it in. I rang in the occupational therapy, not blaming them. I'm blaming I'm I'm the gripe is against the government. But for me, I said it in my head this week, I need a new chair. This will probably last me till March or April, but I better put bring it in now. And we were having a conversation today on the phone. It's like, yeah, yeah you, so you're okay. You don't need an emergency chair. No, but I know how the system works. Yeah, so we'll probably get someone out to you in around March or April. You know, I could have went social media. I could have said, this is a disgrace, blah, blah, blah. My point being, I hate that we have to t- go, you on on, on Primetime or Claire Bourne at th- that time, g- giving your private stories out, which I found quite inspiring. Um, but I shouldn't have to hear it. Do you know that way? I shouldn't have to hear the stories of of the kids of, of Ireland with, with spina bifida um, trying to get scoliosis operations. Shouldn't have to hear migrant stories on why they're leaving a bloodshed war-torn country just to try and seek some shelter, but they're losing their life on a dinghy challenge, uh, crossing the channel. I, I despair at the process to get to that point. And I'm sure in, in your community uh, as well, getting to that point was very joyous but there was a lot of people that were lost on the journey to that point.
2: Not, not only that, I mean, getting to that point, you know, ultimately, and, and, and that, that may have been a moment of real joy, right. Uh, Um, um, but there was a huge price, massive price.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, we, we often don't talk about that after, after big moments like that where there've been big breakthroughs where we want to celebrate the breakthrough, but the, the cost was huge for people. You know, people were, in that referendum, LGBTQ people were, 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 were effectively forced because they had no choice if they wanted to have their, their, their rights respected at the level of the Constitution, if they wanted to have their dignity finally acknowledged. They were effectively forced to go door to door knocking, asking people yeah. to, to, to respect them and to respect their dignity. And it's
1: bizarre. It's bizarre.
2: But also they had to reveal aspects of themselves you know, and of their lives. You know, we had to go out and talk about our relationships and our lives and our families. You know, as a as a as a as a dad, uh, um, you know, I had to deal with the fact that <sighs> I had to deal with the fact that you know, for the first time ever in their lives, my kids were were were, and I'm delighted it was for the first time in their lives. But nevertheless, it was still awful that it was happening. For the first time in their lives, there were people suggesting that their family, there was something wrong about that. There was something deeply flawed and lacking, and 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 harmful about their family. Yeah, I remember coming in, coming in one evening and my daughter, she was, our daughter, she was 15 at the time. She was sitting at the kitchen table writing something. and She was doing her leaving cert that year as well, or junior cert, sorry, that year as well. And I was, I was going to go out for a run to clear my head and, and she said, will you read this to me? And I went, oh, do you mind if I read it when I come back? I thought it was a, an essay or something for school. And I said, what is it? And she said, oh, I was just looking at those no posters and I got really annoyed. So I needed to write something about it. And I said, OK, I'm going to sit down and read that with you. We'll have a chat about it when I come back, but I'll go out. Um, and when I came back, that's what she had done. I actually was so angry when she said it that I tweeted about it and, of course, predictably came back to about eight different radio shows looking to get on and go and talk about it, which we absolutely didn't want her to do. And in the end, she insisted she was going to do it and did it, which was powerful. But for her and for so many other people, you know, they had to walk past posters that suggested or didn't suggest that said there was something fundamentally wrong, corrupt inappropriate, unhealthy about them, about their lives and about their families. And for balance, that had to be permitted and debated. And by the way, we all had to be very polite about it. Yeah,
1: where's the empathy from the other side?
2: We have to be polite and reasonable about it. So if I went on and debated with somebody who believed that there was something abusive about the simple fact of me being a parent, I had to allow them to either implicitly or explicitly suggest that and respond in a very even handed way because balance meant they had to be free to say all of that. And, um, and, but I mean, you know, taking it on to the point that you started off uh, on, on there in relation to, you know, to people with disabilities or to the, the, to the kind of exposures, public exposures that people are forced to go through to simply have their rights respected. And um, like yourself, it's always great to see the outcome, but the outcome, only happens at the end of a journey that's incredibly painful and traumatic because nobody chooses to put themselves out there in that way unless they feel they have absolutely no other choice and they're therefore compelled to do it. And there have been a lot of suffering up until that point. And even if there is a resolution in that individual case and maybe in some others, the system, the approaches, the philosophies, the the, the, the culture uh, that underpinned all of that, that doesn't change. So all that happens then is there's another one sometime later on another issue, you know, and it's, it's why for me, the, this notion of a rights-based approach is so important. I mean, that's, that's essentially what human rights is, is, is grounded in, what international human rights law has been grounded in, in article one of the universal Declaration of human rights. We're all born equal in dignity and in rights and then everything else flows from that. Uh, um, Those are incredibly important principles. And we can build systems that respect those principles or or we can build this patchwork that disregards them because, you know, political interests or ideologies or, 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 or vested interests or economic interests take precedent. And too often, systems are built to suit the system rather than to deliver on the right outcome. Like in a country like Ireland, in a country as wealthy as Ireland, in a country where we spend as much as we do on on health and on social care. It should be possible to do that in a way that's configured to produce the best possible outcome for the people. But so often decisions, and I mean housing, the other classic example at the moment, housing policy is not grounded in, in what's right. It's grounded in some notion of what's possible within a system that's constructed in a way that is not configured to deliver the best possible housing outcome. It's configured, to serve a whole lot of other interests, most of them economic or, or ideological for other people, you know. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's um it's frustrating, not least because it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely.
1: You know? There was one thing, Colin Jordan, that um the the campaign. Uh, I loved the unity um, of it. I loved, I loved that the, I I, I love the personalities. I loved that there was just a united front. And uh, like, t- in actual ret- retrospect, when we were trying to get the UN Convention of, of Rights with Persons with Disabilities passed, um, like, I just wa- like, as a disabled man, I wanted the same support as, say, the gay community got, the LGBT community got. And I'm kind of going, Column Panty, how did you just do it? Like, we got that passed, the the, the disability thing passed, but they opted out of Article 19, which means I can't complain. So I can't really... So it it means nothing without Article 19. Um, So do you think, like, I, because that was a referendum and the overwhelming majority of the country uh, supported it, do you think that the disabled community would have more support if it was a referendum, say, as opposed to a UN... Uh, protocol being passed because that was on the table of government for about 15 years before it was even looked at.
2: Yeah, I I mean, yeah, we did a bit of work on the UNCRPD as well, particularly in the context of work that we did on mental health from about 2008 up until about 2013. And... but, but sadly, I mean, you know, that's one of the flaws within the international human rights system, that it's too easy for countries to opt out of accountability measures and mechanisms. Exactly, so yeah. it's easy to, to not adopt protocols that allow individuals to take complaints. And yet that's a critical piece, because law without accountability, you know, real meaningful accountability can have limited impact. Now, the international human rights system has helped us to drive and deliver an awful lot of very significant change. And for all of its flaws... It's it's helped it's helped to drive and deliver an awful lot of change and the and the CRPD as as you know better than any of us Graham I mean that's that's groundbreaking and I don't mean philosophically it's groundbreaking because of how it how it how it how it how it, it just set aside all of the thinking on disability you know the most basic level it simply said people are not intrinsically disabled people are disabled by a society that refuses to Absolutely. simply accept and, and and allow for their difference yeah yeah I, and and that was a a big shift in in how uh, in how most people would have would have would have thought i do think by the way that if 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 the if the public were given A choice on certain questions, we get very different answers than the than the answers that we get from within the political system. And when I say political system, I don't just mean like electoral, the elected political system. I also mean within the within the official system, right? So you've got you know policymakers, civil servants, and others. There's a particular way of thinking. Yeah. Half the time, it seems like the approach is is to protect the state from its citizens. And it fails to recognize that in a republic, the state is its citizens. I mean, you know, the Heron is fairly clear, you know, all of the powers of the state derive from us, the people. So what the state does, it does. We are, you know, the, the, the republic was created or the notion of a sovereign state in a republican sense. It's a manifestation of us as a people who happen to share common territory and a common history and, 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 and perhaps other uh, many other commonalities. And we've decided to organise in a particular way, and we establish a system through which we can exercise our choices around the kind of society that we want to be. But too often, it feels like the system that we've established doesn't understand that. That the power that exercises—they're not exercising, uh, you know, on us. They're meant to be exercising on our behalf, and it, it's derived from us. So half the time, you know, the state seems to be trying to protect those. Official Ireland, the political system, and and parts of our, our our civil service, the the official government or the permanent government, seem to be protecting. Seem to believe that their role is to protect the state from us, as opposed to recognizing that the state is us. And if exactly. you ask, that was a very long winded way of saying that wasn't. It? But if you ask mm. people questions about how things should be, their answers are very often much more common sense and obvious. Like I remember a number of years ago when we were starting to work on on social rights like health and housing and other areas like that, and we went. We should probably test people's understanding of of these rights because, you know, we we saw there was a value in amnesty talking about, you know, the right to health and the right to housing and and other rights like this and education. And not least because it might get people to think about these things as human rights and, and to think about what the international human rights framework and what international law had to say about this and how government needs to be held to account. Uh, and for the laws that they had agreed voluntarily agreed to be bound by and, and this was a, an important mechanism through which we could affect change so we did some polling just to, just to see what people what people thought and it was really interesting it was in the mid 80s i think something like 84 86% of people believed that the right to health was a was a fundamental human right as important as the right to fair trial so not only did people did people not think not only did people It wasn't that people thought these were not rights. People really fundamentally believed that they were. And what became really clear, and what's more and more clear as you think about it is, people don't realise that these rights are not guaranteed or will not be vindicated for, or will not be vindicated by the state. They think that there'll be a a resolution. And it's only when you find yourself in a position where you can't get the wheelchair that you need to allow you to live a life, to allow you to live and to be in the world, that you realize these, these, these rights, they're not, they're not available to you. They're not being vindicated because of how the, how the state responds. So our response. But actually, I think if we ask people, they'd say, yeah. I mean, yeah. If, you, if you ask people, should the state be accountable for its failure to provide surgery to kids with extreme scoliosis or with scoliosis who need that? should the state be held accountable if it fails to provide people with the necessities that they need to lead to to live lives of dignity, like access to medical devices or or to mobility aids? Of course they should be.
1: Of course. yeah.
2: And the problem is that there there isn't that kind of accountability built in. And in in Ireland for a very long time, accountability was treated as some, you know, if you said that somebody should be accountable, it was almost like you were insulting them. You were calling their integrity into question. And actually, I, I don't understand how anybody who seeks to exercise power does not value accountability. Exactly. Yeah, I, don't, exactly. I don't exercise huge power, right? I, I don't. I, I, I've, I'm very lucky in that I've been able to work in ways that have allowed me to, to have a different kind of power for want of a better word or to, 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 to influence things. But like I run an organization, I'm, I've been responsible for lots of things over my life. And I've always recognized that if I am a, like the genuine accountability to the people that you work for and work with helps you to do a better job. Like that, that meaningful accountability is the one that both proactively and continuously seeks to inform and question decisions. And that decision makers should be, should recognize that that's the kind of accountability that helps you make better decisions. And yeah. um, instead in Ireland, you know, whenever you talk about accountability, it's like, what are you trying to say? Why would I, why? Board, well, it's a dirty word, isn't it? Well, it's like it's an accusation or an insult if you say that. Yeah, people. yeah. But you cannot do a good job. You cannot exercise power effectively if you don't have accountability mechanisms built in. And not just to guard against when you might do corrupt things, but good accountability mechanisms will help you do your job better. Yeah. You know, it's a positive force rather than a, a punitive force. It's constructive rather than punitive if we exercise it effectively.
1: But the housing situation for the disabled as well, Column, is nuts uh, because a friend of mine, uh, himself and his wife, he's a wheelchair user, born with of Bifta as well, and they bought a two-story house. Um, and he bought a two-story house because there was simply no bungalows available and he thought he would make it work. So he went about uh, trying to get um, a, a grant of some sort for a stair lift but you only could earn 21,000 a year in order to get the grant for the stairlift and the stairlift cost 19,000 euro. So he's kind of like, we're after forking out thousands on a house. I can't afford a stairlift. So eventually they sold up that house and eventually found a a bungalow. Um, But the housing system here where it's like, um, 100% 100% of the new builds have to be visitable by people with disabilities, but none have to be habitable. I mean, that is just, that is, talk about discrimination. Like, that is just scandalous.
2: Yeah, I mean, and it's, yeah, it's just, it's it's bonkers. It's bonkers. And, and, it's, and it, it's not that it's impossible to get it right. Exactly. Rather, it's that it causes us to have to think more deeply and change the way that we approach things. Now, that's difficult, right? It's hard to get systems and, 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 uh, and processes and ways of thinking changed. But once you change them, it's easy then to, 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 to work with that. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, yeah, it's...
1: The minister, the minister that, that makes that change for the good should be very, very proud of himself. Um, but there doesn't seem to be the political will over the last couple of cent, uh, decades to, to make such a change for people with disabilities.
2: Um, but what, what do you think is going to come from, I mean I'm, I'm very, uh, you know, let's talk about Covid for the first time huh, in this conversation because you know, mm. we don't talk about that enough at the moment. But one of the things that I've been really struck by was that, that in, both very, in both very negative ways and in positive ways, the pandemic and the experience of the pandemic has revealed an awful lot about what it means to live with a disability. But on some level, for instance, I know even within our own organization, we're having lots of conversations now about whatever the return to normal will look like. And we realize that the return to normal needs to look very different. That one of the things that we've found now is that because we've had to go and do things online and in certain ways, we suddenly find that what we're doing is an awful lot more inclusive. And, you know, we have voices that I'm grateful for within the organization, including from within our staff, who've challenged us to think about that and says, "Okay, so the return to normal shouldn't abandon that. You know, if we discovered that, that the ways of working then were inclusive of people who could not participate or be part of things previously, shouldn't we be thinking about how we would design new ways of doing what we do in the world that are genuinely and truly inclusive? And that means everything from the world to work, to the world of activism, to the world of culture and participation. You know, that's, that's, that's a, a moment that I really hope... We 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 seize and capture and and work on, and then on the on the other side of it, on the worst side of it. And I actually I think it was I saw Philip, uh, here he comes up again um, Bjorn's best mate, um talking about talking about this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. You know that that he was he was reflecting on you know how how Sweden has held up as a country that's done very well in the pandemic, and he was saying yeah unless you're old vulnerable or a person with a disability, in which case you've had to cocoon for the last two years and you were invisible and you don't exist, you know. And similarly with the, you know, the, the, the conversations that creep in and have crept in and been explicit at various points through the pandemic, including here at home, when we've talked about acceptable numbers of deaths, by which they mean deaths of people with disabilities or with certain underlying health conditions, as if somehow, you know, if the price of me being able to go to the pub five nights a week, or you know, go about my life as it used to be. Is that a certain number of other people will die? That's acceptable. As if the price of some model of economic activity, rather than one that's prepared to adapt and change and protect people, if the price of that is is people's lives, well, that's okay. I mean, for me, that's the most stark example of how how uh, societies uh, brutalise, abandon. One hundred
0: percent. I think one of the things that's really, really boiled my piss with this pandemic is that notion of... And when, that when, way. when when deaths related to COVID are brought up, there is a, a cohort and there is a voice uh, that unfortunately can be quite loud that says, oh yeah, but how many of them had underlying conditions? As if that justifies people dying in any way, shape or form, you know? And until people challenge that or until people kind of say well that that's not a conversation that's it regardless if, if someone had an underlying condition regardless if someone was over the age of 70 or whatever the case may be it, it, it doesn't make their death any less than if you or i were to pass away you know and and there's there's an element of removing dignity from people I think that that's happened uh, throughout the pandemic that that our hope is, is, is not something that lasts but there's, there's a little bit of a kind of I'm trying to think of how the phrase There's a little bit of a kind of two tier thing going on. Um, that, that's been born out of it. That, that is just abhorrent. Like and I, I hate seeing it. You know? Well, it's a bit of a two tier thing that's been revealed, right? Yeah, so that's, that's probably know, more accurate, yeah. there, right? It's back to that piece again
2: about, you know, what are we prepared to see? And at, at what moment are we prepared when, when something manifests to begin to look at it, acknowledge it and own the fact that that's happened. You know, it's 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 been it's been more and more starkly revealed. So that's what I mean about you know, in some ways, and it's it's not for me to say it as an able-bodied person, but in, in some ways, there's there's I think positive and 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 negative come out of this if we look at it through a, a lens of of inclusivity. Um, you know, I think there's 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 two sides of that, and I think we need to own the negative and embrace the positive and try and work out from that point. So own the negative and think, okay, so how do we how do we change that? I mean, th- this pandemic is 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 it's awful, it's horrific, and it's also taught us many things. It's taught us that we can do an awful lot of things that we talked about doing for years and never quite got around to it because we just we were saying they'd be too difficult. Like some of the things that we managed to do, you know, at the most basic level, I'm sitting here at home now talking to you, you know, and 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 for the last nineteen months, I've effectively worked from this place, um, and and for years in Amnesty, we talked about. We should be doing more, you know, remote meetings or remote working. You know, we as an organization, we're a, we're a movement. So we make our decisions through a big democratic process. You know, we get together every year to make big decisions on a global level. It means bringing hundreds of people together into some place, you know, from all around the world. The cost of that, the environmental cost of that, the financial cost of that is very, very significant. And we would have been talking about that over the years and saying, you know, we, we need to move away from that model and do something else. Well, as soon as the pandemic hit, we had to. Do you know what yeah. we did? And it worked brilliantly. Absolutely. Similarly, like you know, when you look at when you look at things like you know, there was that mad moment when the private health system effectively, you know, it looked like it had been nationalised overnight. <laughs> or where, no, it wasn't really. We, but it looked we, like we should be moment. so lucky. Right, it looked <laughs> like it for a moment. Or where actually, you know, to to their credit, uh, government here and actually governments around Europe showed that they had learned some lessons from the obscenities and. Uh, uh, um, uh, 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 that were manifest in their responses to the economic crash back in, you know, in 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 the late in 2008 and, and onwards from there, where rather than in the face of an economic crisis, they pumped money into the financial system that just enriched people who are already hugely wealthy. Instead, they made sure that they got money directly to people, and they understood that their response. Well, I'm not sure they understood that their responsibility was to people, but they understood that the best way to support an economy was to make sure that people. Uh, people's livelihoods were sustained. I mean, these were these were things that are, were would have been considered practically communist uh, yeah. ten or twelve years ago. You know that the government would simply start paying people directly, like we had. Yeah, as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, just, just you know. I mean, you know, we can talk about the amounts that were being paid, but that those direct supports would go to people rather than go into systems. That's extraordinary. Yeah. So there were lo- there were lots of things that were. Um, that showed us that things that we said were not possible because they would not work or where we used, where we pretended that there were, there were, there were blocks to them um, that didn't really exist because we were ideologically opposed to them or because we were too comfortable with the way things were. All of that got swept aside. I think that's one of the exciting things if you want to think about what we could do, if we put our minds to it. I mean, it's why, it's why the COP, you know, the the, the COP26 conference on, on many levels was so depressing. Because if you think about how elements of how the world was responding to the pandemic, if they would respond to climate change with that same sense of, of urgency, or our capacity to do things that radically contrasted with the ideology, the political ideology that underpinned you know, many governments, particularly in rich countries, Jesus, we'd solve that crisis. You know? yeah, yeah, I'm not saying we got everything right on the pandemic, because clearly we didn't. You know, When you look at 1% of people in the global south having been vaccinated, as countries like Ireland, I mean, by the end of the year, we're meant to have, what, something like 14 million doses and mm. um, that we haven't used yet, you know, so I'm not suggesting we've done lots of things right. But it's been a time where, where unthinkable, radical things, as they might have been, have proven to be possible. I've right. I, I, I always
1: laugh. I've had a couple of work colleagues that prior to the pandemic were begging managers can they work from home three days a week and the manager's ideology was no, 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 no. And then the first six months of the pandemic where they had to work from home, their productivity went through the roof. The manager was like, well, you can do it permanently now.
0: <laughs> that's it. That's it. Um, Column unconscious, we, we have taken up far too much of your evening. We didn't get to cover
1: some of the stuff that we wanted to cover, but that's the that's what happens when you have
0: We'll a do good, it again. A good tangent <laughs> of conversation. Um, but look, th- thank you so much for, for not just joining us but for, for all your work and for everything that's been done with Amnesty as well. It's a, it's a great organisation and it, it sheds a lot of light on things that need light shown on it. Um, but yeah, as I said, we've already taken up far too much of your evening so I won't waffle any longer. Uh, Colin O'Gordon, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast and thank you very much. Thanks,
2: Danny. Thanks, thanks,
0: Brian. Absolutely love that chat with Colin. Absolutely love that I found a kindred spirit in me Abba family. Actually,
2: uh, it actually, it actually
0: flew by, didn't it? It really, really did, yeah. It, it, uh, it's mad, like that always happens. We always get caught up in tangents and we always get <laughs> caught up in just waffling away and we don't get to talk about half the things you want to talk about. We didn't get to talk about one and four, which he found yeah. like. we, did, we didn't get to talk to about his, his cooking, which has become a pandemic sensation. Absolutely, yeah. Um. So, yeah, we'll, we'll get Colin on again in the future and uh, we'll, we'll talk about a lot more, but, an absolute gent and he does a great deal of great work. So yeah, that's, that's it for this week, lads. Uh, we're coming into the Christmas run. We do have a traditional Christmas episode as we do every year. Don't worry. It is happening. A couple of people have asked me. Have they asked already? A couple of people Haven't have you asked.
1: confirmed?
0: I well, know, we, we certainly said it to them. Monday.
1: Better, better, I'll text the group now and say that.
0: We'll, we will confirm. Yeah, we will confirm. But uh, look, pl- plans are afoot. People have asked will our traditional episode happen. Of uh, course so well. it will It will We'll make it happen Don't you worry And then we're going On our Christmas holidays And myself and Mero are Going to Lapland this year And I can't wait can <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> gag style
0: yeah, Exactly Well, yeah. anyway Mero If people want to listen to Previous episodes And whatnot, Where on earth Can they get it they
1: can go to WTSpod.com or else they can search WTS pod on any podcast provider, such as podcast Republic, which is what I use Apple Podcasts, podcast pod um, Stitcher anywhere, everywhere you can get a podcast. You'll find those search WTS pod. He's at Danjo Murray on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Merrigan Oh my God. I'm at Merrigan mania on Instagram and Twitter and also podcast is at WTSpod.com. Um, oh my god I fucked that up as well sorry guys you're we're struggling WTS pod on Twitter and until next time
0: yeah until the next time yeah, get, right. us, get us on Spotify so. full hearts oh yeah
1: Spotify as well sorry search
0: the WTS pod on Spotify we have both it this week look, go on, it doesn't look d- dig, dig, dig us out a the hole there go on wrap it up clear eyes full hearts You it was
1: sweet